Thanksgiving is over and you've had time to put up your lights, we embark on the Christmas season. And so we are beginning uh, today a short study for uh, the month of December that will turn our attention naturally to Jesus. And it will highlight who He is and what He came to do and why it matters. Over the next four weeks, Lord willing, our study is entitled The Baby in the Manger. It's normal for us at this time of year to think of Jesus in those terms, right? To think of Bethlehem, the shepherds, the wise men, the manger. To think of Jesus as a baby. And that's a good thing. We can do that. But as we do that, we also must remember that it was no ordinary baby. His life was no ordinary life. And as I mentioned, if we're going to understand the significance of Jesus as a baby in the manger, we need to understand who he really was, what he really came to do, and what his life was really all about. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? What did he do? And how should we respond to all of that? Those are the questions we're going to seek to answer over the next several weeks. And today we're going to consider that first question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Your relationship to Jesus is the most important aspect of your life. It is the most important issue for you to deal with. There is no more important question for you than who is Jesus and where do you stand with him? And as we consider those questions, we're going to look this morning at a particular moment in Jesus' life where from his own mouth, we learn who he is. And so I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and our text today is verses 17 through 24. We're picking up in the middle of a scene. I know that, and if you know Me, you know, I don't really like to do that in my preaching, but sometimes that's what we're going to do. We're going to pick up in the middle of a scene here, and we're going to look specifically at what Jesus has to say. So John chapter 5, verses 17 through 24, if you'll follow along as I read. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life 
He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is not what most of us would consider a Christmas passage. But it is a passage that shows us from the words of Jesus himself who he is so that we might understand more about why he came. In the verses leading up to this passage, in verses 1 through 16, there is the account of Jesus healing a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day. Jesus loved to do miracles on the Sabbath day. And I think he did it because not only does it show who he is to the crowds, but it also pokes the religious leaders in the eye a little bit and stirs up a little trouble. And that's what he did with the religious leaders, the hypocrites of the day. So Jesus had healed this paralyzed man on the Sabbath. And because of that, he drew the criticism of those religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so on. Because they viewed work in this way on the Sabbath day as inappropriate, as a violation of the law that says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And Jesus uses this situation to confront their misplaced theology, to confront their religious hypocrisy and their legalism. And at the same time, he also teaches us an important lesson about who he is, where he came from, and what he came here to do. And rather than diffuse the situation when he knows that he's offended the religious leaders, rather than back that down and, and, and downplay that, he actually escalates it by making some pretty wild claims, pretty spectacular claims about himself. In fact, these claims are so strong that they are completely insane if they are not true. No sane, trustworthy man would say the things that Jesus says unless they are true. And that's an important point for us to remember. In these verses, Jesus, with his own mouth, claims to be equal with God. And so in, as he does that, he, he will do that in, in five specific aspects. He's going to claim to be equal with God, and he's going to come at it from five different vantage points, five different, different details or aspects of how he is equal with God. He's going to talk about his own nature. He's going to talk about his works. He's going to talk about his power and his authority and even the honor that is due to him because of who he is. These are bold claims. They rule out any possibility that Jesus was just a good teacher or a martyr for a good cause. So many want to say that. Well, Jesus was just a good model of what love should look like, and, and he was just a good example of, of faithfulness to a religious cause. No, it, no. What Jesus says rules that out. Either Jesus is a complete madman or con man, or he is absolutely the Son of God and Lord over all. There is no in-between. There is no neutral ground with Jesus. Either he is who he says he is, and he is thus worthy of our worship, or he is a deceiver who is worthy to be shunned. And these claims are important and vital 
to our understanding of who Jesus is and the fact that we're gathered here this morning and I'm preaching to you from the Bible should say which side of that question we come out on, right? And we'll see that as we go along. These claims are important to us as we try to understand who Jesus is and these claims ought to lead us to the only reasonable conclusion to repent of our sins and to fall down at his feet in worship. So, who is Jesus? Jesus is the eternal Son of God, equal with the Father as God. And we see that in this passage from five complementary vantage points. First of all, I want us to see that Jesus is equal with the Father in his nature. In verse 17, Jesus gives his initial response to the criticism from the religious leaders for healing this man on the Sabbath. And Jesus doesn't go in and answer their question and answer their criticism with, oh, but it's okay. No, ah, you just misunderstand the law. He'll explain that kind of stuff to them. But his initial response here is this. Jesus answered them, verse 17, My father is working until now, and I am working. That's a defiant statement. My father is working until now, and I am working. And notice he says, my father. He doesn't say, your father. He doesn't even say, our father. Like we just said a few minutes ago, our father who is in heaven. Jesus is not speaking of God as father in the same way that you and I do. He's speaking about something closer. He's talking more about this likeness, this equality in his nature. Calling God his father and making himself out to be the son of God in this way is a way of describing his own nature and his own character. For instance, in scripture, when someone is called a son of something, that's not just speaking about a descendant. Okay, that's speaking about his character and his nature, that he is exhibiting the qualities of that thing. Like when James and John are called the sons of thunder. Why are they called sons of thunder? Because their bombastic and hasty personalities in those moments in their lives as disciples of Christ exhibited the character of mighty thunder. So here, by declaring himself to be the Son of God, Jesus means to say that he is of the same nature and essence and character and behavior as God himself. And then he says, my Father is working until now. In other words, even on the Sabbath, my Father is at work. And in the context of healing on a Sabbath day, Jesus teaches that God is active even on that day. And so with that question, with that, with that statement, we come to an important question. And that question is this, something that the Jewish authorities had to ask and had to wrestle with. Does God keep the law? Well, what do you think? What's the obvious answer to that? Well, of course God keeps the law. But then that leads to a problem. If God keeps the law, then does he rest on the Sabbath day? And if he does, what does that look like? 
And what does he rest from? And it leads to another question. Does God continue upholding and sustaining and controlling all things, even on the Sabbath day? And the obvious answer is, yes, he does. And that leaves the religious leaders here with a dilemma. That God works on the Sabbath, and yet they forbid working on the Sabbath. So over the years, the religious leaders had created all sorts of ridiculous rules for the Sabbath, right? And they did that in order to restrict work for man and yet try to allow for the fact that God still works on the Sabbath, that God is still at work on the Sabbath. And that system of rules is what's behind their confrontation and their criticism of Jesus. It wasn't the law of God that was the problem here. It was the rules that man had added to that to create the system of legalism that Jesus had violated. And so Jesus, with what he teaches in this passage, confronts that system head on. And he teaches that God never stops working. And he implies that their application of the law is a misapplication of the law. He reminds us that God never slows down. God never takes a break from any part of his work in sustaining, protecting, blessing, in showing mercy and grace, and so on. God never stops to being God, and God never stops doing what God does, even on the Sabbath day. Well, that's fair enough. Jesus confronts their system. But then Jesus goes on. He doesn't stop there. Like I said, Jesus likes to rile up the, the religious leaders a little bit because he was going somewhere with this. And what Jesus says next, the gloves come off. Right? He, didn't just, he doesn't just confront their theological system. He makes a pretty powerful claim about himself. He says, my father is working until now. And I am working. Now that's a shocking statement to all who hear it. And the significance of it is not lost on the religious leaders, as we'll see in a moment. With what Jesus says here, he's not just saying, and I'm following the example of God. No, he's saying, the Father and I are one. Therefore, if he works, I work. That's where he's going. He boldly claims to be equal with God and to work at the same level and in the same way that God does. Yes, as a man, he kept the law, including the Sabbath, as all mankind was supposed to, as God intended. But as God, he did not stop working. In fact, he was, even at that moment as he was talking to them, continuing to uphold and sustain the universe. Imagine that if you can. And so in this statement, Jesus claims to be the same essence and nature as God the Father. God works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. We are one. That's an astounding claim. And it is sheer blasphemy if it isn't true. Calling God his Father is enough to get the religious leaders worked up. And so in verse 18, we see that they understood exactly what he was meaning to say. This is why, we read 
the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see that? That's exactly what, they, what the religious leaders took away from Jesus' statement. And now the problem is not just that he broke the Sabbath in their minds, but even worse, he claimed to be of the same nature as God, claiming to be God himself. These religious leaders already didn't like him. Now they really hate him. Now they really want to take him out of the picture. Why? Because of his claim that he is equal with God the Father in his nature. That's Jesus. Well, if that wasn't enough, Jesus moves on. And he raises their level of anger again by taking his claim to the next level in verses 19 and 20. And there we see that Jesus is equal to the Father in his works. First his nature, now his works. Look at verse 19. So Jesus says to them, and, and now he's, he's not just making the claim, he's going to explain it even further. He's going to give details. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son of, that the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And with this, Jesus begins an extended discourse that will really last the rest of chapter 5. And with that, he will confront the error of the religious leaders and he will reveal the truth. And he begins with that phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. That's an important phrase in the life of Jesus. The word for truly is the word amen in the Greek. And where do we usually put the word amen? At the end of a statement we agree with. When Jesus speaks, he puts the amen at the beginning of what he's going to say. He doubles it for emphasis, and he doesn't wait for the affirmation of the crowd. Because he's speaking with the authority of God himself. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. That's the negative part of the statement. That doesn't mean that, that there is some sort of personal inability with Jesus. Rather, it's talking about his essential unity in every way with the Father. And then the positive statement comes. But only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the, son, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In other words, Jesus, as the Son of God, who is equal with the Father in both His nature and His works, does not act independently of the Father, but does what the Father does, and He does it the way the Father does it. So, naturally, there's often a question that is asked, could Jesus have sinned? You look at his life, we know he was tempted. Could Jesus have sinned? I believe this verse helps us to answer that question. No, he couldn't have. God does not sin. The Father does not sin. Therefore, the Son does not sin. Jesus does nothing except what he sees the Father doing. So, you look at the life of Jesus. To see Jesus work, 
is to see the Father work. What God does, Jesus does. What Jesus does, God does. Let's just think about your own life, right? Is there any other person who can say that? <laughs> that he works perfectly the works of God and only the works of God. Can you or I claim that the only thing we do is what God does? Can you or I claim that we do nothing of our own purpose but only God's? No, we can't. In fact, more often than not, I think we find ourselves working at cross purposes with God and trying to adjust because we can't really figure out how to do all this, right? But thanks be to God that through this Christ, through Jesus, through his life, we are saved and the Holy Spirit directs us into doing the will of God. No, we don't do it perfectly, but because of Christ, we can do it through his leadership. Jesus does what the Father does because they are equal in their nature and works. And that also implies that Jesus and the Father are one in their mission and purpose. Their activity is the same. It is unified because they are unified in their mission and their purpose. Now, beginning in verse 20, we'll see how that plays out. How are they equal in nature? How are they equal in works and purpose? What does that look like? Jesus says in verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Well, there's the basis for their relationship. There's the basis for their unity. It is love. The Father loves the Son. That speaks of their relationship together. It is perfect love. And that perfect love drives their unity. It drives their mission. And it drives their work. And so on the basis of that love, we read that the Father shows him, he shows the Son, all that he himself is doing. What does that mean? That means there are no secrets between them. It means there is no vagueness. There are no gaps. There are no breakdowns of communication, and there are no contradicting purposes. How many times have you or I heard that God the Father is the active, angry one of the Old Testament. And Jesus is the loving God of the New Testament who comes along. And, and when, when God is raging out of control and, and is doing all these harmful things to people, Jesus comes in and, and steps in and, and calms the Father down. Well, it is true that Jesus appeases the Father's wrath, but let's not separate their, their work that way. That's not what Scripture teaches. And by the way, if somebody comes up to you and says, well, the God of the Old Testament is all wrath, and the God of the New Testament is all love, just point them to Revelation, okay? And show them what Jesus does to the earth. And then go to the Old Testament and look at the deliverance of Israel from Egypt and tell me that the God of the Old Testament isn't loving. And look at his patience with Israel throughout the generations, right? There is no contradiction in their personalities. There is no contradiction in their work. They are one in mission and purpose. Jesus, throughout his life, was always unified with the Father. He was always intimately aware of and involved in the work of the Father. In fact, Jesus is the physical manifestation of the Father to mankind, right? 
We read about that in Colossians chapter 1, when Paul says, In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's in Christ. And then in Colossians 2.9, he adds, In Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The Father and the Son are unified in their nature and essence and work and mission. And the driving force behind all of that is their mutual love for one another. You ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that the whole purpose behind Jesus' life and His sacrifice on the cross was not first and foremost love for you? It was love with the Father. And that love manifests itself to us. But that love with themselves. God doesn't need us in order to be a God of love. He was perfectly a God of love before we ever existed. We are recipients of that love by His grace. Praise God we are. But this love goes much deeper than that. This is a love between Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit all together. Now, the last part of verse 20 continues. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. Greater works than these. Greater works than what? Well, you just saw a guy get healed on the Sabbath day. But there's going to be greater works. Apparently, there was some sort of cynical thought among the religious leaders that went something like this. Well, we have seen greater works from God than we have seen from you, Jesus. And Jesus countered this thought by telling them that beyond what they had just seen, this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, being healed, along with other miracles that he had done to this point, beyond all that, there are going to be greater works that he would do that would lead all of them to be amazed. What are those greater works? Well, verses 21 and 22 will tell us that they involve the giving of life, and the authority of judgment. Not to mention, as we go on through his life, his own death and resurrection as the Savior of the world. So what Jesus is talking here about here is not just a present marveling and present works, but also a future marveling and future works. Likely focuses not just on the religious leaders who are present, but on all who would come after, who would see those works or hear of those works or experience the effects of those works. In other words, there is a bigger picture in mind than this one conversation that Jesus is having. A picture that shows Jesus as the Lord of all and the Savior of the world. And it gives us a hint, friends, that there is coming a day when every knee will bow to Jesus and will confess that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We read about that in Philippians chapter 2. Some will make that confession as his saints, and some will make that confession as his enemies. The question we need to wrestle with this morning is, on which side of that are you going to be? Because Jesus is who he says he is. He is equal with the Father in His nature and His works. 
And then continuing on, we see a third description that Jesus is equal with the Father in his power. In his power. So we've seen his nature, his work, and now his power. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now we can talk about power in a lot of different ways, couldn't we? When we think about earthly power, power that is displayed on the earth, we could talk about lifting weights, right? We could talk about hauling cargo. We could talk about lighting houses. We could talk about moving speeches. But this verse is referring to ultimate power something greater than all of those things. This is talking about power over life and death, the ability to give life. In Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul is in Athens and he is talking with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, he says of God, He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is greater even than saying, well, he makes the grass grow and, and he makes the thunder clap, right? This is, he has given life to everything that exists. And then again, he says, in him, we live and move and have our being. God, he says, is the giver and the sustainer of all life. And then back in the Gospel of John, we see the same claim made of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life. That's talking about Jesus Christ. In other words, as Jesus declares here in our passage, just as the Father gives life, so also the Son gives life. That means he is the source of life. He is the giver of life to whomever he will. And that includes physical life in that nothing exists apart from him but it also includes spiritual life in that anyone who comes into spiritual life or eternal life comes only through Jesus Christ. And then in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, you know the context there? Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead, a man who had been dead four days he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Indeed, true life is found only in Jesus Christ. That's true of your physical life. That's true of your spiritual and eternal life. He is equal with God the Father in his ultimate, sovereign, life-giving power. Now, fourthly, we see that Jesus is equal with the Father in his authority. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, we find that God, that is God the Father, is the judge of all the earth. And now here we read that the Father judges no one. Should we now say, aha, I have found a contradiction in the Bible? No, that's not a contradiction, it's a clarification. 
This isn't really saying that God never judges. Rather, it is indicating that the work of judgment has been delegated to another, specifically to the Son. That's the next phrase. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. Now, there's a future aspect to this. There's an end time aspect to this, right? That Jesus is the ultimate judge who will execute final judgment on all the earth. We read about that in the book of Revelation, as I've mentioned. But there is more to it, because that word judgment includes the idea of authority, or we could say jurisdiction over all things. We've already seen that everything that the Father does, the Son does. The Son, who is Jesus, is the acting agent in the Father's will. He is the one who exercises jurisdiction and authority over all the earth in accord with the Father's will. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the judge. And so, in other words, here Jesus is claiming ultimate authority as the supreme authority and judge over all things. Turn over real quick to Colossians chapter 1. And we'll see this explained more deeply. Colossians chapter 1. And Paul proclaims this truth in undeniable terms, starting in verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That means not just physical thrones, right? But that means the authorities that fill those thrones. That means God puts authority in place. God is the one. Christ is the one who rules over all of that. Verse 17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. He is the highest authority in the universe. All things were made by Him. They belong to Him. They continue by His power, and they answer to Him. No one exists without the creative work of Christ. No one lives apart from His sustaining will. Everyone will give an account of His life to Him. No one comes to eternal life except through His saving mercy and grace. He is equal with the Father in His divine and sovereign authority. And finally... Not only is Jesus equal with the Father in His nature, work, power, and authority, but also in His honor. And this really is the culmination of the other four. The other four are leading to this. This is the purpose of it all. That mankind would honor and worship Jesus as God. Look at verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Words are important in Scripture. And we come to a word like that. 
that tells us, here's the conclusion of the matter. All of this I'm saying to you so that all may honor the Father just as they honor the Son. Here's the purpose. Since He is the essence of God Himself, since He is the reason we exist, since He is the one to whom we will give an account of our lives, we must bow to Him. We must submit to Him. We must worship Him and serve Him. That's the logical conclusion we must come to if everything else is true. As one preacher helpfully summarized, this is the consequence of all the previous claims so that the only possible right response to the one who created everything and who will bring everything to its consummation and who, by the way, in the middle upholds everything by the word of his power, the only possible response is that he is to be honored in the same way that God is to be honored. Jesus here claims to be God, and he insists on being worshipped as God. Just a good teacher, huh? What would you think if someone walked in here and made the same claims? The religious leaders had claimed that they worshipped the God of the Old Testament. And Jesus here claims to be equal with that God and demands his worship. And he will do this throughout his ministry. For instance, even in John chapter 6, as early as that, and throughout his life, Jesus will declare that it is the work of God in our lives to believe in the Son whom he has sent, so that believing that he is the Son of God, and that he does the work of God, that is our responsibility. That is what we are called to do. You see, there's no room for neutrality here. There is no room for the idea that Jesus is just a good guy or a good teacher or a good example or just one of many options on the roadways to heaven. The claims that he makes here are outrageous. In the presence of the most highly respected and powerful religious leaders, Jesus boldly claims to be God and he demands to be worshipped as God. Either he is a deranged, insane liar, or he is who he says he is. And so he is either worthy to be ridiculed and shunned, or he is worthy to be worshipped as God. And truly, if you study out his life and you look even at this passage and beyond, there really is only one option, and that is to worship him as God. To even say, well, I choose to come out on the other side. Even that is shaky ground. You don't have a foundation to stand on there either. The evidence is clear throughout Scripture and throughout history that Jesus is God. He is the only Savior. He is our only hope of eternal life. And He is worthy of the same honor and worship as God Himself. And that leads us to verse 24 which serves as a natural and fitting conclusion to the passage, where he says, yet again, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, listen up. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Here's here's what this all boils down to. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The implication being, whoever does not believe, does not have eternal life, and does come into judgment. 
and has passed from life to death. But for all those who believe, there is eternal life. And he says, whoever hears my word and believes. Hears and believes are virtually synonyms here. Belief assumes hearing. Right? And hearing assumes a response. Parents, you understand that. When we ask our kids, did you hear me? We're not asking, did the sound waves make it into your ears? We're asking, did you respond and obey? Right? That's what we're looking for. Hearing and believing are on the same level. Belief leads to a response. Belief involves repentance. Repentance means turning away from sin, putting our faith in Christ and turning to God. And the result of that is salvation. And salvation involves peace with God and eternal life. Where does that come from? From hearing the word of God and believing that Jesus is the Son of God and Lord of all. That he is God. And the one who thus believes, Jesus says, does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Is it true that God has given all judgment into the hands of the Son? Yes. Is the Son going to judge the world one day? Yes. But those who are in Christ do not need to fear, because we have been saved from that eternal judgment. We have been saved from the punishment of hell. We have been given eternal life. We have been given peace with God. So, this is who that baby in the manger really is. This is Jesus. This is what we need to understand about him as we go through the Christmas season. Because there are any number of voices throughout the Christmas season who will proclaim the name of Jesus and have no substance to it whatsoever. This is who Jesus is. And if we understand this, it changes everything about how and why we celebrate this holiday. And I come back to that most important question. We've already talked about who Jesus is. Now the question, where do you stand with him? You either embrace him as God and serve him with your life, or you reject him. And there is no middle ground. There's no, I serve him on Sundays and Wednesdays and Fridays from one to four. And the rest of my life is for me. And there's no, I serve him only in these areas of my life. And there's no, yes, I acknowledge him as God and that's good enough, but I'm not going to yield my life to him. No, that's not salvation. That's not faith. He's either Lord of all or not at all, right? Where do you stand with him? Those who embrace him have peace with God and eternal life. Those who reject him are under his judgment forever. So, do you want life? Then come to Jesus. Are you qualified to come to Jesus? No. No one who has ever come to Jesus has ever been qualified. But what does he say? Whoever will. 
You put your faith in Christ. No one comes to the Father except through Him, and no one who comes will ever be cast out. You want life? Come to Jesus. There and there alone you will find forgiveness and peace and joy and life forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.